Producing Crime features conversations with influential thinkers in the police service and leading crime and policing researchers. Jim Rose is a senior advisor to the State Department's Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs and the regional gang advisor for Central America. He's also the white narcotics cop in the real world, featured in the movie Black Landsman. We talk about his time infiltrating the KKK and his pioneering work since then in Central America. Welcome to Reducing Crime. I'm Jerry Ratcliffe. If you've seen the movie Black Klansman, and if you haven't, you should, then you're in for a treat. Black Klansman is a 2018 comedy drama loosely based on the true-life exploits of Ron Stallworth, an African-American police detective in 1970s Colorado Springs, who ends up sort of infiltrating the Ku Klux Klan, the KKK. It's got a spectacular 96% rating at Rotten Tomatoes, so this really is a must-see movie. I say loosely based on Ron's story, because in the real world, as you'll hear, Ron is black, and so had to recruit two white narcotics officers to do the actual infiltration. One of those officers ended up, in his undercover role, being bodyguard to the infamous David Duke, former Grand Wizard of the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. That detective was Jim Rose, my guest on this episode of the podcast. While Jim's law enforcement journey started in the Colorado Springs Police Department, the majority of his career was spent with the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration, in Central and South America. He now serves as a senior advisor to INL, that's the US State Department's Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs. He's the regional gang advisor for Central America, based at the US Embassy in San Salvador, the capital of El Salvador. After chatting about his early career KKK infiltration, we discuss his innovative work helping the National Civil Police of El Salvador, the PNC, and other police services across the region develop intelligence-led, problem-solving, and community-oriented policing. We caught up for breakfast at last year's IACP meeting. Just after we sat down, the singer at the restaurant across the street started up, with a vocal range that wandered from warbling to screeching. So with that providing a little background... Ah, uh, yeah, I'll go with ambience, why not? Come and join us while I sat down with Jim for a leisurely breakfast at an outdoor restaurant in San Diego. And when I say breakfast is on me, I don't mean it's like slathered all over me. I mean, you know, <laughs> <laughs> don't do that anymore. No, well, we won't do that. You haven't eaten here before, have you either? I don't, no. I don't know a, what half this stuff is. Everything is a mystery here. You started in Colorado Springs. Back in the what, prehistoric era? When yeah, was we were riding uh, horseback and <laughs> horse-drawn buggies. How many states were in the Union at that point? <laughs> <laughs> Good question. No, I started in the early 70s. Did my uh, journeyman time there in the police department and then and moved on, of course, to DEA. Tell me about the time in Colorado Springs. I mean, did you think that you just stay in Colorado Springs your entire career? Was it? I did think that. What, what pushed you into policing? That was my plan. You'll get a kick out of this, but... Uh, I was military police in the Air Force, and I saw some Dirty Harry movies, and I thought, that would be a really cool career. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, for sure. Well, I suppose that's not worse than kids nowadays watching CSI and all wanting to be forensic examiners. Sure. So I'm in my last tour of duty in the Air Force in Colorado Springs and getting discharged, and my buddy said, let's all go down and sign up, take the test for the police department. And three of us joined the police department there together at the same time. That's fantastic. Did they stay in? No, one got fired, and one left and went to law school. <laughs> so, okay. it's a mix. That's real life, right? That is, yeah. 
So when you joined, did you think it was going to be a job for life? I did. My plan was I had no desire to promote. I wanted to be a police officer and maybe a detective for my whole career and reach that golden age of 50 years of age when I get a 50% retirement and call it quits. But that wasn't a very realistic plan. Well, it was a perfectly realistic plan. It just wasn't the plan that happened for you. Yeah, well, that and it wasn't going to work out. I mean, uh, 50% of a uh, police officer's retirement in those days was not that great. So my opportunity came three years in when I got an opportunity to go into the narcotics unit. And that was probably some of the most fun times I ever had. Really a lot of fun. This is back in the 70s, the hippie days, you know, marijuana, hashish. Stuff we don't really worry about now. We don't worry about now. And that's where I got my interest in drug law enforcement. But then you had this minor distraction when Ron Stallworth walked down the hallway and come and tapped you. Yeah, so uh, Ron Stallworth was an intelligence detective. And his job was to screen the newspapers every day looking for suspicious ads in the classifieds, et cetera, et cetera. And he came across an ad for recruitment for the Ku Klux Klan. Hold a minute. They just advertised in the newspaper in those yep. days. Contact us at this number. And he called. He thought it was a joke. <laughs> right. But he called and it was for real. And they interviewed him. He said all the right things. And they said... This is just on the phone, right? Because he's black. Yeah. And he admits he made a mistake. He gave them his real name. Oh, good God. Because he didn't plan on ever meeting with them, right? Right. It's his intelligence. And so they talked a couple of times and finally they said, well, we want to interview you. We think you'll do. He got in a jam then because he couldn't go meet with him. He was a black intelligence officer. Which in the 70s would have been a rarity anyway. Oh, my goodness, yeah. He was the first black detective on the force. Right. Very unusual. Very smart guy. One of the best cops I ever worked with. Anyway, he realized if I want to continue this thing, I've got to get somebody to step in for me. So he came down to the narcotics office, and the first one he picked to do this was my senior partner. And he tapped Chuck Luck to go in his place. And so Chuck went in, did the interview, and got accepted first. And then there was also a rule that you had to uh, recruit two new people into the clan. So Chuck brought me. An undercover cop recruited you into the clan. Correct. Fantastic. So we met at a pool hall. And the leader of that clan there in, in Colorado Springs did the interview. It was me and another female that was trying to join. I don't know who she was. Oh, so she wasn't in the job? No. She was a for real interested member. <laughs> it almost came to an end right there, though, because they were pouring pitchers of beer. And uh, I hadn't eaten much. And uh, finally they said, you'll do. And he hands me the application to fill it out. And I had been using an undercover name. Though I started filling out the information and I put James rose and then I realized oh my god <laughs> there was no other rose on the police department so I wadded it up and I said I screwed this one up do you have another one he says okay yeah yeah here so I started to throw it in the trash he said no give it to me me we don't want anybody to find this and he put it in his coat pocket oh shit I thought well that's it he's gonna leave and he'll read that and figure out that I'm not who I say I am and we're done yeah apparently he walked outside and threw it in a dumpster and uh Everything was kosher. So you joined the clan? Yeah. So I, I'm kind of, do I want to say congratulations? Well, no, no, not at all. <laughs> You're not still a paid up member, are you? Because we've got to stop no, with no, this. No, 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 no. I'm sure. I'm sure we've been scratched from the rolls. But um, <laughs> we weren't inducted yet, but we were recruits allowed to attend all the meetings. That came later with David Duke. 
and I should say that David Duke is, is he still the grand poobah wizard? You know, I don't know. I doubt it. I doubt it. But um, he was the grand something or other in the clan. He was the grand poobah, whatever they called him. Wizard dragon. Dragon, grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan, I guess, and Louisiana. The reason the chief approved this because this was 1978 and there were some racial tensions building in Colorado Springs. Eldridge Cleaver came and was giving speeches I have to no the black community. Black power. Oh, uh, right. yeah, the yes, black of course. Woman. Thank yeah. you. That yeah. And he preached violence. So while he was doing that, the Klan decided that they needed to countermarch. And so we were concerned about violence erupting. In addition to that, David Duke was planning on coming to Colorado on a huge recruitment event. And so we wanted to have eyes and ears inside. You have to remember the concern too was back in the 1920s, the Klan basically controlled the government in Colorado. And these were powerful, influential people. Mayors, judges, city councilmen, influential, important people who basically ran the state. I don't think people who know Colorado now or visit Colorado know anything about, about this that. history. They didn't, I didn't know at that time. You know, the concern was, wow, they, apparently, you know, everybody thought the Klan was trying to come back and make a big comeback in the state. We went to the meetings. We avoided uh, the meetings where they were building wooden crosses to go burn in black people's yards. And they had a big plan to put up a whole bunch of huge crosses on high points throughout the city. And we were able to deter all of those because once we found out where they were going, we would saturate the area with marked units. They were never able to burn a cross throughout the whole summer. You know, I, th I think that in itself is an underappreciated goal, which is just simply disrupt criminal activity so that you can at least stop racial tensions flaring. Prevention. Yeah, but just disruption for the goal of prevention. It's, and it's underappreciated. People look too much towards arrest and prosecution, but sometimes you can just screw up somebody's plans nicely. That's great. Obviously, they weren't the uh, sharpest tools in the toolkit. <laughs> because they should have figured out that every time they had met at one of the houses to build these crosses, we had to go somewhere else. My mom was sick, we were going out of town. We never attended one of those because we were prohibited from participating in overt acts. You never got to wield your carpentry skills. <laughs> that's true, not that I ever had any. But anyway, David Duke shows up and that's when it really got interesting because what he was trying to do was form an alliance with a group called the Posse Comitatus. They are an anti-government organization, and they only accept elected sheriffs as true law enforcement authority. They were planning some violent events to blow up some government buildings. And uh, we went with David Duke to the leader, Chuck Howarth was the leader of the uh, Posse Comitatus. We went to their house. We weren't allowed to sit in the private sessions between the two leaders, but we were told later that they were forming an alliance. I'm just impressed that a bunch of knuckle-dragging, you know, racists actually know any Latin. Posse Comitatus. You know, uh, Posse Comitatus were blue-collar workers. Yeah. But the Klan, they were mostly enlisted army soldiers at Fort Carson. Oh, good grief. Poorly educated. You know, they just weren't very sharp. Well, this is all kind of post-Vietnam right then, wasn't it? Yes. Military had, recruitment was a thing. You had recruits that were recruited by the courts. <laughs> Cheers, thank you. So the judges recruited some of these guys, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, we did some events with him. We were his security while he was in town. We escorted him to a uh, local radio station where he had a debate with a University of Southern Colorado black history professor. Do you think he had any idea that 
it was undercover police officers as this kind of security and bodyguard right. at this. This is such a surreal experience, right? So when we're escorting him into the station, people were throwing rocks at us and bottles and screaming and yelling. But and I you're must, like, I'm with you. I? I, I must tell you, though, he's a very intelligent guy. He has a master's degree from uh, Louisiana State University, I believe. And his new presentation was, we're not against black people. We're just for white people. Right. For uneducated people who don't get out very much. They bought that. You can see how that can be an, an alluring message, even though it's just the, the horrible underpinnings of racism keep coming through. It's a different tack every time, right? Yes. So in the end, we went through the summer. Now, eventually, we had the final swearing-in ceremony in Denver. To join the clan. To join the clan, learn the secret handshake, take the oath. We had on Black Power t-shirts, not Black Power, excuse me, White Power t-shirts. You see how you get confused? Uh, white Power t-shirts because the police department would not sprout for the, uh, the full row. Right, this is the part that cracks me up. So there is a great photograph, mm -hmm. which you've kindly shared with me, of you undercover sitting next to David Duke, the chief wizard poobah, dragon, whatever of the clan. And I burst out laughing the first time I saw it because, I mean, do you mind if I share it with? No, fine, oh, no. fine. Thank you for allowing me to do that. I will share it. People come to the podcast page to reducingcrime.com slash podcast and they look up your entry there. I will share a link to this photograph because it's an incredible piece of policing history. Because it's you undercover with David Duke, but you're wearing this t-shirt that says Ku Klux Klan White Power. And I'm like, how in God's name do you end up wearing that t-shirt? And it's because the police department, all they would reimburse I think for. those were 5 or $10, and the full robe was like 50 or $70. Which is a lot of money in the 70s. And they wouldn't front for it. So they said, that's acceptable. You, you buy the t-shirt and you're okay. So hold on a minute, your, your undercover career was at risk because the police department wouldn't stump up to buy $50 worth of robes. I don't know if it would get, but anyway, that picture, when we took it, those were Polaroids, right? That was the day of Polaroids. Mm -hmm. And I had him sign the back of it and he said to Rick Kelly, which was my undercover name at the time, white power forever. Good grief. So we should say that for people who have seen the Black Klansman movie, the section where Ron Stallworth's character gets a photograph taken with David Duke, that didn't actually happen. But it's you in the real photograph. It did happen for you. It happened for me and my partner, Chuck, standing there in front of the cross with David Duke and a bunch of other recruits. I would guess half of them were undercover police officers. Because <laughs> we were sharing intelligence with the Denver Police Department and the Lakewood Police Department. And we were bringing these people in and introducing them into the clan. Also. That's fantastic. I mean, you guys have basically solidly, you and others, have infiltrated any attempts by the clan to really work properly. Correct. So what was the upshot? Did they just give up? So they were still pretty active. We started slowly withdrawing. David Duke left. People were losing interest and some of the members from Fort Carson were being transferred out. Right. Right? The criminal charges that did come out of that finally was against Chuck Howarth and the Posse Comitatus because it was several months later they were arrested on a conspiracy to blow up a federal building. Anyway, we kept the peace, we did our job, and everybody went home safe. Why do you think there are some states that seem to sort of foster some of this white supremacy, extremist views? It's it could be history in the South, right? It's, it's ignorance. It's a lack of education. If you get enough education, you have to eventually face some of the deceptive thoughts that, you, that have infiltrated your mind. And so uh, I think that's part of it. There is racism in the U.S., of course. Yeah. I think we're making progress in that, in that area, but uh, I think it, to some degree it will always exist. 
But some states seem to do a better job of just exposing the population to a broader world. And Sure, yeah. sure. You know, as far as I know, the KKK is no threat in Colorado right now. He ran for a congressional district a few years later, and uh, David Duke did not get elected, so thank God for that. Right. So after Ron left the police department, he decided to write a book. The book is pretty accurate. The movie has a lot of movie stuff in it, right? <laughs> That's fair enough. <laughs> so to make it more interesting. And the book is called Black Klansman. Black Klansman. Apparently, uh, somebody in Hollywood read the book. The Mushroom and Fig Coca. Cheers, thank you. I, I seem to recall it was Bette Midler, and she called Spike Lee and said, you have to read this book. This is an incredible story. You have to do something with it. And it is a great story. It's fantastic. And, and so Spike, Spike grabbed the book, and... Uh, and they wrote a script. I remember us meeting at an ICP meeting in Philadelphia and we, we grabbed a drink and a whiskey at the bar. And then you came out with the most bizarre statement I think anybody's spoken to me at so He said, summer movie's coming out next week. And I wonder what the hell you were talking about. You're a continually uh, an undercover dude in many regards, my friend. Well, my undercover days are over. Anyway, you know that movie actually won an Oscar. And Ron Stallworth, I watched him go up on the stage with Spike Lee to receive the award. Good. Fantastic. He called me the night before and he said, if I can get on a red carpet, I'm going to give you a big shout out. So, oh. But he's a great guy. He's retired now, lives in El Paso, and we stay in touch occasionally. But uh, sometimes I look back on those, it's like a dream. I can't believe we actually did crazy stuff like that. But um, it was kind of a nuisance assignment to me because uh, I'm learning the drug trade. You'll only be a knock, yeah. I, yeah, I, I'm trying to hone my skills, tradecraft, and I had to put a lot of time into it. And I, it was kind of a nuisance to me. But now I look back on it, it was kind of quite an event, I guess. So the whole Black Klansman thing wrapped up. What was next? I stayed in plain clothes in narcotics for about eight years. We got a new chief, the first outside chief we'd ever had from LAPD. Radical. I bet that uh, caused some friction. He had a philosophy that uh, anybody who was undercover or in specialized units for more than two years should return to patrol. Well, there goes all your specializations. So I wound up on a midnight shift and I realized this is a young man's job. <laughs> so um, I had some friends that recruited me uh, to apply for DEA and went to the DEA Academy and uh, I started my DEA career, which lasted about 21 years. And uh, I applied to go overseas and I spent about half of my DEA career overseas in Bogota, Costa Rica, El Salvador. Did you have fun? It's a great fun. It's a great job. I got to see a lot of the world. And some of the worst parts of it. And some of the worst parts of it. But I got to work some really good conspiracy cases at the highest level of drug trafficking. I was no longer buying ounces of marijuana in Acacia Park in downtown Colorado Springs. I actually was working with uh, Javier Pena and Steve Murphy, the Narcos VA guys. Oh, from the, from the TV series. In, in Bogota. We were actually working in the office. There were only 15 agents at the time. And uh, that was a lot of fun. So you go from taking down a few ounces to taking down what kind of sizes? Laboratories in the jungle that produce 5,000 kilos a month. Wow. Yeah. But when you go into an op, you're taking how many people to, to take down a laboratory in the jungle? Oh, you're with a company of uh, well-trained Colombian cops. They've got good people for this kind of work? They were. For the most part, they were all good people. The commander of the uh, operations group that we worked with to destroy the labs, Major Ramirez, I believe his name was, eventually was killed by the FARC. According to Wikipedia, they are the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia and a Marxist-Leninist revolutionary guerrilla organization, which is hard to say when you had a couple of drinks last night. <laughs> correct, correct. Think about that. 50 years, they controlled large parts of uh, Colombia. 
So after they did their little peace accord thing, not too far, long ago, think about that transition for law enforcement in a 180,000 man police force. Those have an impact on the way you do business in law enforcement, right? Mm -hmm. And the same thing is true then of Central America. Yeah, when did you move to El Salvador? I arrived in El Salvador in 2000 as the DEA attache. And uh, I worked there five and a half years. I got caught in the promotion cycle. I had to go to Washington to do my headquarters time. That's like years. a punishment, isn't it? Oh, it's terrible. This is what's a little fascinated by these organizations where people spend so much time in the field and at some point you have to cycle through Washington and everybody kind of dreads it. You have to go to the circus and see how it operates. So I did two years there. I was eligible to retire. I got a call from uh, somebody at the State Department asking me if I wanted to go back down and stand up a, an anti-gang strategy basically for Central America. Nobody else was doing it. I mean, it's a hell of an ask, isn't it? Here is a huge job and we just like you to pop down there and do it. So I said, yeah, I, I know El Salvador. I, I have good contacts there. I have good relation with the cops. So I think I can do this. So they gave me like $9 million and said, create a strategy. In a suitcase? <laughs> no, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> all right. So this is not Afghanistan then? It's not Afghanistan. That's correct. So first of all, we had to create a work plans. I think I flew 50,000 miles the first year throughout Central America, just doing um, capacity assessments of the different police forces to see what they were lacking, what they needed, what kind of training they were lacking, what equipment they needed. But what you learn in that is amazing because, I mean, I've done some work with you in a number of those countries. Policing in Honduras, policing in El Salvador, policing in Guatemala, policing in Costa Rica. It's like they're not even on the same continent. That's true, I agree. And that's because their creation and their development as a law enforcement agency, organization, is... is I could do another coffee, please. Thank you. I'm good, thanks. It's impacted by the political environment from time to time. Well, the perfect example is El Salvador. El Salvador went through a 12-year civil war. The international community came together with both sides and created the peace accords. And their main concern was to make sure that there were not going to be human rights violations in whatever iteration of law enforcement we created. But then you compare that to somewhere like Panama that seems to have almost a paramilitary policing unit. Correct. Different culture. Different culture. So what they did was they eventually created a new, brand new national police force. They've been around about 30 years, but they took about a third, not exact percentages, but about a third from the guerrillas, a third from the military forces, and a third from the civilian population. Threw them together and grabbed a bunch of them and said, you are the commissionados in police. And none of them had any law enforcement experience. And so that's what I inherited. And the reason I was there was because the violence was out of control. It was about 2005, and Viejo Lin, who was a uh, bocero, a leader of one of the gangs, had killed a few young women, abused them, cut their heads off, put them in suitcases, and dumped them in parts of the town. And the alarm bells went off. Oh my God, we have a problem. Who do you call? The police. Right. A police department that had been formed about a week previously with a bunch of people in charge who had no idea how to run a police department. <laughs> they had been around about 10 years, but... Uh, That's still like a week yeah. in, in normal yeah. times, yes. Yeah. So they did what they could do. They created this uh, Operation Mano Duro, Heavy Hand. Uh, iron and they fist, rounded yeah. up everybody they saw with tattoos on the street and charged them with illicit association. That's right. Mano Duro, Iron Fist, isn't it? Yeah. Then they did a super iron fist. Because the first one wasn't ironing enough or hard enough. Right. So 
problem was these were not criminal investigations. There wasn't any evidence against most of these guys. I think in the first year in 2005, I, I'm not sure about the exact year, but they arrested about 15,000 alleged gang members and about 10,000 of them were released within 72 hours. Right. So was that a failure? In some ways it was. But what they gained out of that was intelligence. They finally were able to see the structure of the gangs, how they operated, the command structure. So the intelligence gain was, was great, but that wasn't the solution to the problem. No, it was a huge price paid for that as well. Huge price paid for that. This is a socioeconomic problem. It's an education problem, economic opportunity problem. Yeah. What do you do with a bunch of young people who are just emerging from a civil war? It's a nightmare with no, no employment opportunities or education. Well, there's that, and then a lot of them escaped during the war to the U.S. and went to places like L.A., Washington, and, and other places. And especially in Los Angeles, they found themselves to be set upon by Mexican gangs. And that was the start of 18th Street and MS-13. They had to defend themselves. They were forced to create gangs to defend themselves in Los Angeles. In some sense. And so when you start that kind of activity, you go into criminal activity, right? Yes. And you wind up in jail. And then you get deported. You have no job skills, no education. But what you do know how to do is extort money, do armed robberies, whatever it is. Yeah. What our position has been is we have a shared responsibility with our neighbors in Central America to try to deal with this problem in their countries and in ours because some of it was exported from the U.S. and uh, now a lot of it's being exported from El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala to the U.S. So we have a shared responsibility and that's what INL is, is all about. The Institute for Narcotics and Law Enforcement, it sounds more kind of draconian and enforcement than it actually is. It's much more about capacity building, isn't it? And that brings us to why we brought you to Central America. Just to give people in America some respite from me. <laughs> Just give them a break. Well. What I found was because of the way they were created, the police operations were reactive in nature. Yeah. You stand around and wait for the event to happen. You go clean it up. You go back and wait for the next event to happen. It's pretty much fire brigade, fire service policing. Exactly. There was no prevention. They weren't preventing crime and they weren't preventing recruitment of gang members. Yeah. So that's what we tried to focus. It's been fascinating. I've been coming down well, for at least, I think over a 10-year period, I used to come down three or four weeks a year, and it's, it was fascinating. It's still and you know more than most people about the history there and what they're facing. Incredibly uh, complicated. It, very complicated. It defies simplistic notions. I think one of the things that I struggle with is, you know, when I see well-meaning politicians out of the U.S. go down there and say, we're going to have a regional initiative that's going to work for Central America. And I'm thinking, there is no... Central America other than geographically that all these countries have got need completely tailor-made solutions and they need tailor-made solutions within the country in different places. Yeah, that's true. El Salvador has problems that we don't have in the U.S. We're trying to help them craft their own solutions within the rule of law and with due process. That's, that's a challenge. But uh, one of the things that happened was I was trying to figure out how we could move them forward and uh, someone walked into my office and handed me a book called Intelligence-Led Police. It's a terrible read. Yeah, terrible book. Way too wordy. I read that book and I said, this can help them. This is a concept that they need to understand and, and adopt. And I remember twisting your arm and begging you to come down and teach some courses. Uh, and uh, it's had an impact. You tempted me with Ron Zacapa. That, that fine, very good sip in Guatemalan rum, which that's is... That's true. That's, that's true. Fine. I had to bribe you. That's disgracefully good stuff. So we had our own form of corruption between us. But, <laughs> I'll uh, own up to that one. So tell me, Jim, 
How do we turn things around? Because each country does feel like it's its own, obviously, country. Yeah, these things take time, and we're identifying places where we can have regional cooperation that will have an impact. And I'll give you an example. We have a border intelligence sharing unit that the countries in the region all have analysts assigned to. And the idea is at the border crossings in the U.S. or wherever, when they intercept someone who they don't understand who they really are or what their criminal affiliation might be, they can contact their analysts in this regional center in El Salvador. And these analysts from different countries access their own databases and try to provide the information needed to see if there's warrants for their arrest, whatever. That's kind of an unprecedented level of international cooperation. Really. It is, it is. It's a first. And it's important. It's very important and it's been very successful. The training programs that we decided upon with intelligence and policing for one thing, it has had a great impact on law enforcement. I don't know to the degree it does in, in Honduras and Guatemala. They've all been trained, you've trained them. Uh, but, but in El Salvador it has. I'll they, take the blame for their failures then, they, there you go. <laughs> they have written into operational strategies an intelligence-led policing model. We've worked hard on that, we've trained thousands of them, and it's having an impact. You've heard about the truce situations there, and they've gone through various attempts at truces, which generally always break down. They just can't last. It's hard to make a, a truce with the devil. But when they did break down, the violence increased dramatically between the police and the gang members. And there were shootouts almost weekly. One of the things that astounded me when I came down there is that you've got decent cops down there, good people. Patrol officers, you know, with bachelor's degrees and stuff, earning like 430, 450 bucks a month US. And the PNC, the police department's got how many cops? 25,000 25, which is smaller than the NYPD and they were at one point they were burying a police officer a week getting murdered in, in 2015 they had more than 60 assassinated in one year yeah for a police department that's smaller than the NYPD and in shootouts they were killing dozens and dozens of these gang members what we realized was they're not using proper tactics so they would stumble onto a group of uh, gang members. One of them would pull a gun out and the shootout would begin. And usually there was some collateral damage. Right. Maybe one of the gang members that wasn't armed got shot. And so we realized they're not using the proper tactics. They have no operational planning capacity. So we focused on that and we created some uh, tactical courses. We trained up a group of 30 trained trainers and took them to an academy in Florida and trained him for a couple of weeks on tactics, dynamic entries, perimeter security, operational planning. They got it. And those incidents of shootings between the gangs and the police have been reduced dramatically. It's fantastic. You also started a model precinct project. I like the idea of it, but you should explain what it is because it's almost like a show home on a new housing project. There's nothing magical about it. Well, I'm trying to fluff you, mate, so come on. We, we, we tried, so I, I went to the director. I think it is. I think it's a great idea. I went to the director of the police and I said, we want to try a pilot project. The, basically, I, the idea was, let's convert a delegation from reactive policing to proactive. And we should say a delegation is equivalent of like a police, like precinct. A police precinct or a police district. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So they said, that's a good idea. We just created a brand new district, precinct, delegation in Lourdes, Cologne. Because it's so bad there, we had to create a whole new delegation just to deal with the violence. If I remember correctly about Lourdes having been there and done some field work there, 
I remember you did warn me in advance that they have a there's about 90 to 100,000 people there and the, the pre previous year before we arrived they had 300 people murdered. Mm -hmm. And I was doing the sums in my head, uh, that is a homicide rate more than 300 per 100,000 and that's off the charts, that's crazy. Yeah, it was bad. They didn't have radio, they didn't have protective vests. The US has a homicide rate of about 4 or 5 per 100,000 and everybody here is onto the teeth with protective vests. Now imagine telling cops in the US to go work somewhere for 450 bucks a month where the homicide rate is 300 per 100,000 and you don't well, have a na vest. Nationally, the highest point was, uh, nationally, not just in some of those precincts. In 2015 was a peak. It was 106 homicides per 100,000. It was the murder capital of the world. And places like Lourdes were the murder capital of the murder capital yes. of the world. Yeah, it was the worst. And it wasn't just homicides, it was extortion and violence. What we tried to impart to them was that don't tell everybody what you can't do because of what you don't have. Think about what you can do with what you do have. There's always something you can do as a precinct to make life better and more secure for the people you serve. There's so always something you can do. You can't bring in a first world perspective. You have to come down and say, okay, let's assume that they don't have any traditional policing tools or real prosecution systems or functioning courts. It's really a lesson in situational crime prevention because you can't rely on the criminal justice system. It's basically not functioning. One of the first community policing courses we gave them, we took them up to St. Petersburg College, which is a police academy. And the officers from Florida came in to teach this course. And they were telling them, listen, you can't just sit in your police cruiser, turn off the air conditioning, turn off the radio, and get out and walk around. And they're looking at each other like, who has an air conditioner? <laughs> who has a radio? Who has a police cruiser? So. After that first iteration, we took the instructors aside and we said, you've got to fine tune this for the operational environment they live in. Yeah. So the courses got better, needless to say. <laughs> I remember we visited a police station in Honduras up on a, the top of a hillside in one of the Hurricane Mitch communities. No running water, no communications with headquarters. When they had a homicide, they were telling us they took photographs of the body with their personal cell phone and then had to drive down the hill 40 minutes before they got a cell phone signal and can call headquarters. I yeah. And I don't think anybody here understands just the enormity of the difference between countries. We put a team over there to do an assessment to pick a location for a pilot project on a model police precinct. So we made an appointment, we went and met with the commander of the precinct. And we talked about the challenges he faced and I asked him, uh, so um, how many homicides did you have here last year? And he said, uh, we, we don't keep those stats here. They keep those down at headquarters. And I said, okay, so what do you think is the source of most of the violence and the homicides here? And he said, oh, just social disintegration. Okay. There you Thank go. you. Yeah. Thanks for your time. We're out of here. Uh-huh. That's the other thing we learned was that if you don't have a proactive leader in a precinct, you're not going to make any ground. So we had success wherever we went, wherever we had proactive leadership, but it wasn't being institutionalized. Right, that's always the problem, because I remember Lourdes went from being the most, out of 25 or so delegations, went from the most dangerous to one of the safest. Same thing happened in uh, Santa Ana, the second MPP program. We gave them I2 analyst notebook. They did a diagnostic for six months of the previous year's homicides and they were able to, using those tools, they found out the 11 clicks that were committing to violence, 
We should say that a clique is a subset of a gang. Now, like a clique is like yeah, a subset of MS-13 or 18th Barrio. geographical area for that, for that gang. larger Lushing gang. It, yeah. They found out that one of the 11 cliques was responsible for 80% of the homicides. There you go. There's then your they target. They found out where they were doing the homicides, and they found out what time they were doing the homicides. So where do you think they focused their limited resources? Fantastic. And they dropped homicides by 60%. Now, they transfer these leaders out, and it's not being institutionalized because we probably should have written up an MOU with a director general to get a commitment to institutionalize these best practices. Right. And we didn't have that, so when they moved these people out, it went back to the way it was. Right. So we've, we've adjusted that. That, I think, might be one of the most important lessons from this whole experience, which is you can do something when it seems impossible in a place that seems like all hope is lost but you have to institutionalize it and you have to make sure, and that's maybe the, the greatest thing a leader can do is to make sure that there's a legacy that's left behind. Yeah, it takes time. It takes time to change the culture of a huge law enforcement organization. It doesn't happen overnight. Investment in time, money, training, equipment. So do you think that the money that US taxpayers are spending down there on projects like this is money well spent? I do, I do. Listen, this is not playing Colombia. This is not billions of dollars. Here's our goal. A safer and more secure El Salvador is a safer and more secure United States. Yep. And that's what we're trying to accomplish here. And I gotta say, it's, it's been rewarding, it's been fun. I feel blessed to have had the opportunities I've had to engage in trying to build law enforcement capacities around the world. At the very least, you didn't get off by the KKK. That was, that was a result, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> hey, thanks for coming out for breakfast, mate. I appreciate it. Thank you. That was episode 68 of Reducing Crime, recorded in San Diego in October 2023. The photo of Jim while undercover with David Duke can be found at reducingcrime.com slash podcast, where you can also find transcripts of this and every episode. Subscribe, why don't you? At Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple, or wherever you found this podcast. And if you teach, you can DM me for Excel spreadsheets with multiple choice questions for every episode. Be safe, and best of luck. <laughs>